Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're continuing our look at how three different RPGs handle the idea of the Weird West. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? Well, Scott, you've been talking to people, I understand. I generally try to avoid it, but yes, I have been interviewing people. Well, specifically, we've been putting out a couple of special episodes recently to tie in with our Cults episode run that we did a little while back. And I interviewed one of our listeners, who's also one of the admins on our Discord server, Benzo Slamka, who has made it his main hobby or his main obsession, I'd say, uh, to research conspiracy theories. And he has kindly spoken to me at length about these sort of weird new conspiracy theories that spread via social media that have got very cult-like aspects. Yeah, we talked at length, so I've split that up into two special episodes, the second of which will be out, I think, a little while before this episode. So if you haven't listened to them already, check your feed. And also, Scott, you've been running a couple of games with Ain't Slade Nobody, The Murder Shack, and The Green Pumpkin. (laughs) Yes. You know, we've got Halloween coming up, so was it Halloween-themed? Yes, it was. The Murder Shack, for a start, we did that as a live stream and it's been recorded. It's available both as a video on Twitch and YouTube and you can listen to just the audio, I think. That's the scenario that I wrote for the last Blasphemous Tome. But then (laughs) one of the regulars on the Ain't Slayed Nobody Discord server, who's the person who does their episode graphics, did this sort of mock-up episode graphic for an episode that didn't exist they were talking about doing possible halloween things and so he sort of jokingly made this graphic for a scenario called the green pumpkin and he put my name down at the bottom of it as the gm and so cuppy cup pinged me on the discord server and says we have to make this happen and so i said okay but only if we do it as an entirely improvised thing so that's what we did We created the characters ahead of time, but the entirety of my notes before we started were the lines, there is a pumpkin, the pumpkin is green. And we just kind of went from there. Was was it a great pumpkin? No, no, it was a green pumpkin, Matt. A green pumpkin. No Charlie Brown. And quite a small one. No Charlie Brown, but lots of Neil Diamond. Let's leave the green pumpkin and move on to uh, the night bus. As if I haven't been doing enough recently, I also ran another video thing. This wasn't a live stream. We recorded it, this time for How We Roll. And this has gone out as part of the tabletop live gaming event that should have taken place down in Alexandra Palace this year. But obviously, like everything else, has moved online. We were going to be doing this before a live audience down there, but instead we've recorded it. And I think it's going to be available after the event. I hope it is, because this is going out after the event. Assuming it is, I shall put a link in the show notes. This was a special short scenario that I wrote for the event, and I think I may write up a variant of it for the Blasphemous Tome at some stage. 
Like I'm not doing enough stuff online already, Andy Goodman, who does the Expeditions to the Grizzly Peaks podcast, started a new actual play thing that he's called Grizzly Peaks Radio. And he's started getting a bunch of podcasters from various podcasts together on that to play through some old White Dwarf scenarios from the 80s. And the one that he started out with, which I've been playing in, is The Watchers of Warbles Week. So is Andy running that? Yes, yes he is. Oh, okay. And this is set in very much in MR James country, but it's not a very Jamesian scenario. And it's set just up the, the coast from Dunwich, uh, or Dunwich, sorry. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's a real change of pace going back to these old Call of Cthulhu scenarios from the early 80s, the White Dwarf ones, because they were, I'd say, very different in tone and certainly presentation to the kind of stuff we see today, very much more bare bones. And the style of play that they seem to provoke and engender is a bit more kind of old school and perhaps more tongue-in-cheek. And Andy's described this whole thing as basically being the Lovecraftian answer to Last of the Summer Wine. <laughs> or as I suggested calling it, Last of the Summer Space Mead. <laughs> oh boy, I haven't watched that show in years. And if you're looking for some online gaming, then a friend of mine is organising a virtual convention on December the 19th, 2020. Uh, that's James Corp on Twitter which is at James C-O-R-P, that kind of core. He's uh, having time slots to accommodate international players. So see show notes for details. And as time is marching on, Christmas will be almost here. And with it comes Blasphemous Tome Issue 6. So this is your final call, last orders for submissions. So if you want to get anything to us, then please get it before the bell rings on October the 18th. We'd be absolutely delighted with any short submissions of articles or things of Lovecraftian interest, artwork. If you're sending us any articles, please make them short. I have 500 words is ideal. And black and white artwork that would either fit as a small vignette or a full page thing. Now, onto our main topic, Three Views of the Weird West, Part 2. Well, last episode, Matt and I talked at great length about a couple of games. Matt talked about Deadlands, and I talked about Dogs in the Vineyard. And we figured it was only fair to let Paul have a go. Well, I'm going to talk about Down Darker Trails, Terrors of the Mythos in the Old West, which is a supplement for Call of Cthulhu. Doing just what it says on the cover, taking your Call of Cthulhu games into the Old West. That's written by Kevin Ross with a bunch of other names, including Keith Herbert, Scott Daniel Anielowski, David Cole, Todd A. Woods, Nicholas Nicario, Mike Mason, and full disclosure, me. I did a bit in it too. So it's a, a very nice full colour book, full colour layout that takes us through creating characters for the Old West with various options. These will be kind of familiar things to Call of Cthulhu players. So we have some new professions, some new skills, things like gambler, gunfighter, rancher, cowboy stroke, cowgirl, which I can't help feeling now we should have called cowhand. Um, <laughs> yeah. So You've got gambler in there. You don't need anything else. Is that all you need, Matt? Yeah. Just gamblers? Closest thing to hucksters, they're great. <laughs> 
Also, experience packages such as Civil War experience, because obviously Civil War is, you know, depending when you set in your game. The Old West setting is quite a long period. Exactly when it starts and when it finishes is a bit elastic. It's, uh, you know, perhaps a bit more so than Gaslight even. Then we have some new skills and optional rules. So optional rules, of course, you know, guns feature pretty heavily in the Old West. So we have rules for fanning and dual wielding of two pistols and, and exciting things like that. Then we go into, you know, Call of Cthulhu is well known for its source material and background settings and so on. And it presents us with three layers of information for the, the Old West. So the first layer is the historic one starting off before European settlers arrive and then taking us up to, say, about 1890-ish. So taking us through the waves of immigration and the way things developed and, and giving us kind of historical material. And I always like that when I'm reading a source book that it differentiates between what's actually real and historical and what's fiction because mm. I like to kind of be aware of which is which when I'm reading it. The next chapter then deals with the supernatural West. So we get a bit more how the mythos might work in it and so on. And then we get the lost worlds of the old West. This takes us into some of the, what we might talk about later with some of the, the source material for the, the weird West. Um, Kenyan from the mound mm. Lovecraft wrote about and the lost Valley, Robert E. Howard and various other works that are sort of precursors to the whole weird West thing then we get a couple of locations that you could use in your games there's Pornheaton and san rafael two sort of towns and settlements that you could use as a basis for adventures and then a couple of scenarios one of which yeah really stuck with me when i read them it was a real kind of a more of a sort of sandboxy scenario with a lot of interrelationships between various characters and sort of grey areas in, in relationships and so on. I think the first one is more of a, a straightforward adventure and then the second one is a much more kind of sandboxy deal. One thing I think it deals with very well, well, I hope it deals with it well, it certainly addresses it, is the issue of the indigenous peoples of America before the white settlers arrives. There's a little box here which I'd like to read and, you know, I think it bears reiterating in, in our show as well. I mean, see what you think, Matt and Scott. It's headed American Indians. Throughout Down Darker Trails, the term American Indian has been used for the indigenous peoples of North America. There continues to be debate on the usage of terms like Native Americans, which many do not feel adequately represents indigenous peoples. In truth, many people prefer to be referred to by their specific nation or tribe. The authors wish to be culturally sensitive and, where appropriate, we have used specific nation or tribe names, with American Indian being used to encompass the many differing tribes and nations. No offence is intended. And as a, a white English guy, mm. I struggled with this when I wrote about the Old West and those people because i think we have a, a tendency and when i say we i mean you know us in well people like me have a tendency to look at the indigenous people there as like one big mass of people yeah because that's how we're brought up it's you know, cowboys and indians but then obviously we come to realize oh actually they're not like one people there's lots of mm -hmm. differing nations or tribes who when you look at it actually 
don't agree on one cohesive name for all those people because they're not one big cohesive group of people. Oh, yeah. So it presents an issue which is addressed like that in the book. And they use the term American Indians. So that's one I'm using. I've That's as best I know. And like I say, if anybody wishes to inform us otherwise, then please do. But with the addendum that, you know, no offense is intended to anybody. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I've read all sorts of dissenting ideas about this, that the term Native American is problematic in itself because it includes American. And the idea is that these cultures predated America. So referring to them as American is using the name of the country that basically destroyed their cultures, or at least ground them down to a large extent as an identifier. And so I've heard that some indigenous people prefer to be called Indian for that reason. And there also seems to be a generational thing. I don't know. I mean, this is something I picked up from fiction, but I read a novel recently called The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, who was a member of the Blackfeet tribe himself. He wrote about Blackfeet people in this story, and it's a contemporary horror story. And a lot of it is about dealing with your culture in the present day when it's been transformed so greatly. And one thing that he touches upon is that even within the Blackfeet people there, there's dissent across generations about what the correct nomenclature is. So, Mm. yeah, it it seems to be incredibly messy and complicated. And as an outsider, I haven't got a clue where to start. So just going back to the book, it also addresses the diversity of people that were there. I mean, in, in the old westerns that we saw on tv as kids it was very much the white man was the the dominant force there and there'd be white men in white hats they're the goodies and white men in black hats and they're the baddies and there are the indians up in the hills and it was very kind of stereotyped and one-dimensional the down dark trails book addresses that and it looks at some really interesting characters one i think is well worth to mention stagecoach mary who was an African-American lady, a black lady, born a slave in 1832 and freed in 1865. And then at age 60, so consider this, age 60, she was the first African-American woman and only the second woman to work for the US Postal Service. She got the job because she could like hitch a, I don't know, like a a load of horses real quick to the the wagon and um, was known for being good with a, fists and her pistols and everything like that so she sounds like an awesome character and an illustration of how the preconceptions of people about the ethnicity of the characters you know may well be misplaced Mm. because there's there's lots of examples of people maybe not quite like her but you know there's a wide diversity of ethnicities of of people there 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 are black people there there are chinese people there there are the the mexicans and then there are the the europeans you know from scandinavia from germany there's rafts of people coming over from all different uh, parts of the world I remember reading an article on the BBC website some years back where they were talking about the fact that a significant portion of the people who worked as cowboys in the Old West were actually black. Mm. And this isn't really reflected in fiction and popular culture at all. And we also get biographies of legendary Westerners. So we get people like Ambrose Bierce, you know, the Mm. author and journalist. Of course, we get People like um, Calamity Jane and Billy the Kid and Sitting Bull and people like this. I read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee a while back 
because I, I had a holiday a few years ago and went over to Dakota and so on. And reading that book, it kind of brought home to me that, oh, wow, there are like pictures of these people that the book discusses. So it's almost like reading about King Arthur and then turning the page and there's a photograph of him, yeah. you know, to me. Because these people like Geronimo and Sitting Bull and, and Wild Bill Hickok, they're kind of like characters from myth. I mean, they're, they're real people, right? They, they become mythologized. And to see these black and white photographs of them and consider that they were around in my great-grandparents' time. Mm. It's not so far back, you know? My grandparents were born like 1902, 1903. So their parents, they would have overlapped their lifetimes. It's just remarkable because when we think about this period in London, we think of Gaslight and Sherlock Holmes mm. and people like that. And then when we think about it in in the West, in the Old West, not in New York, I'm not talking about the, the East Coast, but over towards the West Coast, Texas and so on, it doesn't seem like the same period. It's so vastly different. It's this frontier land, which is a total contrast to all of that, it seems. In my brain, I can't reconcile that it's the same period almost it just seems like something other i think you made the point in an earlier episode that anything that happens before we're born feels like much longer ago if you think about even going back to gangster films the classic gangster films and portrayals of the gangsters of the the prohibition era al capone yeah i don't know about you i think of al capone as being kind of this old-timey character mm. he died less than 20 years before we were born paul right yeah, yeah. And he died young. <laughs> yeah, just getting off topic a bit. But I mean, if Lovecraft had lived into his, say, 70s, his lifetime would have kind of overlapped with ours pretty much. Mm. He could well have lived into the 1970s if he'd have lived to be an old man, which would give us a very different perspective on him. And he may well have changed. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff to dig into in the Down Dark Trails. And there's also the campaign shadows over Stillwater, which i had a, a leaf through and read recently so there's a lot of good material and i feel it's like really rich to go in there and write for and later in this episode one of the things i'd like to talk about is like the appeal of the weird west stroke the wild west why it's such a attractive setting for me at least and i think from having run games set then an appeal to a lot of people. You've talked a little bit about the historical setting and the way that's portrayed in Down Darker Trails. Is there anything particular that's done with the mythos in the setting that is unusual or specific to that? Or is it very much kind of the mythos we know just in a different time era? It doesn't really give you an overall take on here's the weird west like matt talked about in deadlands yeah which imposes a strong identity on the setting it's more like here's the real world old west and here takes on various monsters and how they might sort of integrate into it rather than here's a big picture of how it all is which i much prefer because i you know i like to sort of think okay well uh you know i could set a an adventure down in Texas and use this monster or I could set one up in North Dakota and I don't know have Ithaca or something coming down from the north in the frozen winter or you know whatever it may be I just like mm. having that setting because it I think one of the 
big deals about the old west is you can kind of it's almost like a blank page you can put almost anything you want onto it and into mm. it and that's what we see with media and films that have been around over the decades anything you want to set there you kind of can and how about things like investigator groups? Are there any specific Old West-style investigator groups? Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking, for example, one of the first things that came to mind, if I'm going to run a game using Dan Darker Trails, is that I'd probably want to have an investigator group that was a travelling medicine show, just because I think that'd be really cool. So I think there aren't any specific investigator groups there, but You've got the various professions, you know, outlaws or lawmen and, and so on, that you could easily make those kind of things with, particularly with the Civil War experience packages. You could easily kind of bring people together under that umbrella. So again, it's something that I think probably specific scenarios and campaigns could well address and sort of mm. say, okay, here's this adventure, and then sort of think, well, how would you bring people together to do this adventure? Here's some ideas for like player character groups, investigator organizations, if you like, that would address that. And certainly I've kind of thought about that with the game that I'm kind of planning. It strikes me that actually the Old West as a setting is probably better than a lot of Call of Cthulhu settings for providing excuses or rationales of having these groups of people travelling together, whether they're pioneers, whether they're Texas Rangers or Pinkertons, like Matt mentioned with Deadlands last episode, or something like a medicine show, or a particular tribe of indigenous peoples who are caught up in something. There are reasons for groups of competent player characters to be traveling together yeah a bit like when we talked about world war cthulhu mm. the soe special operations executive groups which almost like was designed for role-playing games because it would take mm. like a handful of people and send them on missions behind enemy lines which is exactly what we want to do in role-playing games this game you know using the old west because of the isolation that is kind of inherent in these massive landscapes with these small groups of people that they kind of band together just like you said scott again it lends itself very easily you know you're you're four people riding on horses into the sunset well we've seen that a million times and we know just what that means i've not read down dark trails or had a chance to play it yet i'm looking forward to actually getting to do so at some stage but i assume that there are options in there for pop cthulhu as well yeah it very much gives options for pop cthulhu because when we're considering matt your description of deadlands that sounds a bit like more on the pulpy end of things oh definitely yeah. it's by definition it is a very pulpy game and you know just in the typical cowboy shootout that we see in films the accuracy they display with their weapons is complete pulp i think there's a lot of scope for pulp action and uh, the book gives options for both standard call of cthulhu gaming or pop cthulhu i remember one of the best gunfights i can remember in a in a uh, wild west film i'm fairly sure it's in for a few dollars more where the guy basically just stands a few feet outside of the range of the bullet <laughs> yes. and so it's constantly smashing into the ground in front of him he brings out his gun which can shoot further and he wins <laughs> is it lee van cleef with the the gun that That's can it. shoot further and there's another scene where i think he shoots somebody's hat off and then he keeps shooting mm. at it and it's just pew, oh, yes. pew, and yes, he keeps yes, shooting yes. it further higher up into the air <laughs> yeah yeah fantastic yeah 
Now, I know one thing you wanted to go into, Paul, with all this discussion was a general overview of what is so appealing about playing games in the old west whether it's weird west or just a western setting yeah i mean i'm really taken with the old west as a setting and i kind of wonder why we did a show before about the appeal of role-playing games we did one about the appeal of horror i'm interested in talking about the appeal of the the wild west because i'd aim the question at you i guess matt i've had time to think about this but maybe you haven't but i know you are particularly fascinated by the old west the wild west the weird west we saw a picture of you you know in your larp gear tombstone was it yeah that's right so what what is it that appeals to you about that setting it's very close for me almost to my love of film noir that it's it's all about the atmosphere the style and the landscape that it's just that whole aesthetic that really appeals there are certain bits of the history yeah but my my knowledge of the raw details of that that history that setting isn't great, but it's still that it's just the whole landscape has that kind of allure and having a story set on that backdrop is something that really just does, it fundamentally appeals to me. It's interesting what you said. You don't know much about the history mm. and I don't think you need to, you know, yeah. to get into the game. You just, I can remember when I ran my first Call of Cthulhu game set in like the Wild West and I just handed out the character sheets and I said, oh, you're, we open up and you're riding your horses across the plain. And immediately all four of them totally got into character. <laughs> and I couldn't introduce the rest of the scene because they were just talking in character and they were riding their horses and just coming out with one-liners. And, and they were just so immersed in it immediately. It's mythic. That's why. I mean, yeah. You, you touched upon that earlier. I mean, it's relatively contemporary history, but it is mythic. And I suspect that one of the reasons for that is that it is one of the last bits of history, at least in the US and certainly in the world that we're more familiar with, where it sort of exists outside what we consider to be civilization, that it is frontiers, it is facing up against nature, it's exploring the unknown. And there isn't really much of that in the modern day, but this was its last hurrah yeah i think we see areas where there was lawlessness the isolation led to that mm. we see desperation we see i can remember laying down a map it was our friend steve dempsey looked at the map it was just a map i'd copied off the internet and put down you know with a like a pass through the hills and just on the edge of the map i didn't know about this at the time he says uh, is that the donna pass <laughs> and I'm, I look at it and I, uh, oh, I just, okay. yeah, that's what it says. I just happened to have included oh. that on the map purely by chance. I hear they throw great parties around there. <laughs> they do great kebabs. Yeah, yeah. Eat your shoes first. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that, that, there's that whole thing of isolation and this massive landscape, I think. And, and the, you know, the whole thing of ghost towns, right? You go mm. to America now, I went to some, I went to one in California. The idea of ghost towns in Britain is almost inconceivable because land is at such a premium and we don't really have that thing of people just upping sticks and moving on to another place. Whereas we visited a ghost town in California and you could walk around it and, you know, you look through a dusty old window and there's a pool table with balls on it maybe. And it's like these people just upped and left. Yeah, they call them ghost towns. They are just kind of spooky and eerie. Mm. They're still there. There's also this, um, 
this sense of rapid change as well, I think. It's a, in a state of transition constantly. You know, the, the white settlers are going and settling and trying to set up ranches and farms and so on. So, so they're changing it because prior to that, it was just wide open prairies and there were maybe like indigenous tribes there and so on. And then there's the railroad come in mm. and telegraph and Buffalo Bill and, and people like this. By the end of their lives, they're in kind of like carnivals and circuses showing off what cowboys and Indians used to be in their lifetimes. It all changed so quick. You know, we talk about the speed of change of our technology age, but I think there was a massive speed of change then as well. And, mm. you know, when you watch some Westerns, they say, oh, you know, things were changing, you know, the West was changing. It was like, yeah, I think that's an element of it as well. It was, a, it was quite a short time, that period. And also, it was a time of expanding an existing country and often doing so through violent conflict mm. with with Mexico, with indigenous peoples, a sort of time of, of chaos. Well, like you said, lawlessness, but just conflict that, again, we don't necessarily see in the modern day, or at least not in the West and, and America. I mean, I don't think we could see that again until we, as a race, go and settle another planet. Mm. That sense of expansion into... It's conflicted because it's not, you know, sometimes to say pioneers, it's like implying there was nobody there already. There yeah. were people there already. But we're not going to get that same sense of change of a country of territory in that way again i think you know i can't think where that would happen i think if a combination of pandemics and climate change kill enough people then we can reset the populations to a level where stuff like this can happen all over again paul look on the bright side okay let's look on the bright side scott well let's get some six guns and a horse and get ready <laughs> like we're going to survive that paul yes we are <laughs> Yeehaw. I mean, it's just the romanticism. You've mentioned it before. I think that's, that is a, a key term, the romanticism of being a person on a horse riding and you can see the far horizon and there's some like rocks and scrub plants and you're self-sufficient. You're not going to meet anyone. That's like a dream world already. And I think because it has grown in culture as myth, there is a simplicity to the whole thing that is appealing as well, a moral simplicity that traditional Westerns are very much good guys versus bad guys. They are conflicts that are resolved simply through violence. And there isn't a lot of moral complexity to that it is purely a myth because it wasn't anything like that but the version of it that we carry around in our minds does have that childish simplicity to it that mm. i think is immensely appealing to people who want to write adventure fiction or play adventurous games and stuff like that yeah i mean we tend to simplify the real world in our games and here it's been done for us already <laughs> yeah oh and i just wanted to give a one more thing um, before mm. we go on to uh, where the Weird West came from. My daughter, who's been studying Icelandic literature and so on, uh, was telling me about this woman named Guthrida Bjarnstotir, which is spelt with two Fs, which is right. a D with a cross through it. Yeah. Now, this woman in the 10th century uh, was Icelandic, and she 
visited Norway and Greenland, and she sailed to the North America in longships 500 years before Columbus. She lived there for three years. Her son Snorri was born there. They called it the Vinland. Mm. The sagas called the Vinland sagas, which Vinland meaning wineland, like vines. She had several husbands and a couple of sons. And also while she was in the Vinlands in, uh, in North America somewhere, possibly Canada, possibly as far south as New York, she has encounters with the undead. <laughs> wow. So there's some stories about that. I mean, the Icelandic sagas have some uh, interesting material in them in the extreme. Remarkably, she ends up traveling to Rome. You know, mm. so this is a woman in the 10th century traveling to North America and Rome. I mean, it's just yeah. incredible, isn't it? Well, to me, I don't know, maybe maybe not to other people, but it just seems a remarkable to consider what her life would have been. Have these stories been published in a, I guess, accessible or digestible form to the lay public? Or is this the kind of thing that only academics? Yeah, Emily's talked about the Vinland sagas. I'm not sure how much accessible they are because, um, I mean, there will be translations. There will be various translations. But I just thought it was an interesting character. It's not really Weird West, but an early version of it. So should we go on and just have a chat about, I mean, I've used the term Wild West, but we're also talking about the Weird West, and that's in the mm -hmm. title of this show. So the Wild West is, you know, that's the Old West story. Wild West is kind of what we know from, like, all these films and media and, and historically. But the Weird West is, is something a bit different, right? Yeah, it's something that seems to have started out in the pulp magazines. There's a fantastic Wikipedia article which outlines the history of the Weird West as a genre and the key works, and I'll link to that from the show notes. And uh, rather than us, I think, going into a lot of exhaustive detail about the various works there, it, just take a look through that if you're interested. But as a genre, it really seems to have started out in the pulps. In fact, the earliest stories I can see listed as birthing this genre are those written by Robert E. Howard, these weird westerns that he wrote for Weird Tales back in the 1930s. From there, one of the key works that kicked all of this off as well is one that I think you just touched on in passing, Paul, which is The Mound by H.P. Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop, which introduces Kinyan, but it's set in Oklahoma and has this sort of historical Old West side to it. And I think there's also perhaps an element of that as well, though you know, not necessarily with the with the time, but with the general setting, with the Curse of Yig as well. Hmm. But from there, it seems to have grown into popularity. One of the defining works in the, the early days, and this blew my mind because I'd, I'd heard of it, but I didn't really know too much about it, was one of the old movie serials from the 1930s, The Phantom Empire, which starred Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, and it was a musical, a musical serial that was about Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, uncovering this sort of weird futuristic civilization, this city buried under the settlement in the Old West. And yeah, it just sort of mixing in science fiction, the Western and songs. <laughs> 
which is just I, I don't know, it blew my mind anyway. You have me so excited about the overall prospect that you said it was a musical and then my inspiration <laughs> just plummeted through the floor. There was a TV series that I used to watch in, well, it was a very short-lived TV series back in, I think it was 1980 or so, called Cliffhangers. It was an American series, and it was an attempt to sort of recapture some of the serials from the 1930s. And they had three strands, three storylines going, one of which was basically a remake of The Phantom Empire, the same setting set in the Old West with this highly futuristic civilization under this town. I remember watching that at the time, and I think that's probably when I first started becoming excited about this sort of this crossover with, with the weird and the Western. Not to mention the likes of other shows around the, I think it was, well, I'm not sure if it was the 50s and 60s or 60s and 70s, but uh, Wild Wild West. Yeah, that was the 60s. Yeah, you're right. That was one of the foundational works. I think possibly of the popularity of that, in the 1970s, DC Comics started publishing Weird Western Tales, which was an anthology comic. But I'm pretty sure that that's where the term Weird West comes from. And also around the same time, they did the Jonah Hex comic as well, which I think has been fantastically influential in that genre and keeps getting resurrected and keeps going. And there was apparently a fairly shitty film, which I've never seen a few years back, starring James Brolin. I've seen the posters for it, but not seen the film. Are there any Weird West stories or films or comics or anything like that that you've come across that have particularly influenced any of you? There's one in particular for me. There was an episode of The Twilight Zone that was based off a Manly Wade Wellman story called Still Valley, which probably mentioned in a previous episode because it's one that's really stuck with me as a little story that I really, really like, set during the Civil War, where you have this, for all intents and purposes, either a warlock or necromancer who's put a spell over the town where I think it's the Union's force that's in the town, so from the north, that have been made completely still, motionless, almost as if they're statues. Mm. And this Confederate scout goes into the town and the warlock makes him an offer to say, well, if you take this book and sell your soul to Satan, then the Confederacy can win the war. And this is just a few days before the Battle of Gettysburg, but it ends with him doing the right thing and burning the book and setting history history <laughs> on its... Uh, on its proper intended course. Nice. That blending of the weird and the and kind of the occult that just really resonated for me. It really hit a bell. And Paul, I know you're something of a Joe R. Lansdale fan like I am. Have you read any of his Weird West stuff? No, I don't think I have. I've read a few. He wrote two sort of Weird West novels back in the 80s, Dead in the West and The Magic Wagon. Dead in the West I read many, many years ago, and I remember very little about it, but I remember liking it. But I reread The Magic Wagon a few weeks back, and yeah, that blew me away. It's a difficult read because a lot of it is is about racism in the Old West, and it it being Lansdale, it's not a racist book, but it portrays racism in a very unflinching way, in a very nasty way. It's still a fantastically entertaining and short novel that is about a travelling medicine show that's exhibiting the mummified body of Wild Bill Hickok, and apparently drawing upon his magical powers and stuff like that, and it's it's just amazing. Hmm. 
And he also edited an anthology back in the 80s called Razored Saddles, which, if you're interested in Weird West stuff, I really, really recommend. I mean, a film I watched just recently was Bone Tomahawk. Oh, yes. Starring Kurt Russell from 2015. That's a weird film. I mean, it's, mm. it, it is Weird West because, uh, spoilers, there are kind of uh, monsters in it. But the structure of it, it's, you know, it is a team, a small group of people that go off. I think there's about four or five of them that go off to uh, rescue somebody who's been taken captive by these beings up in the hills. But also there's this weird mixture of kind of gore and violence mm. occasionally and very gentle humour. It's um, a weird combo uh, when you're watching it. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah, actually, it opens up with one of the, the goriest scenes you get yeah. like in the first 30 seconds, as I recall. And when you say gory, it really is fucking gory. Some of the later scenes as well. I and mean, this is a mm. really, really, really violent film. I was not prepared for just how brutal it was. Mm. The only thing I'd ever heard about the film was apparently lots of mutilation of a particular area of the body. That was the mm. only thing that anyone had ever talked about. I didn't even realise it was a monster flick. Yeah, if you wanted a fairly archetypal story to build a Call of Cthulhu scenario on, that would be absolutely perfect. Uh, another one that springs to mind I watched quite a long time ago was Ravenous. Oh, yes. Guy Pearson, Robert Carlyle. Well, I didn't know what the story was going to be. This is from 1999, but um, mm. yeah, I remember enjoying that. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, all sorts of Wendigo stuff going on. Mm. Oh, yeah, kind of the title implies that, now you think about it, yeah. A couple of others for me that, that admittedly, they're, not, they're kind of tangential to, to Weird West, but they still evoke that same kind of feeling. Mm. Not sure if I mentioned this in the previous episode or not, but Dead Man is a particular favourite of mine, the oh, uh, yeah. Jim Jarmusch film. Again, just for the the style, I mean, there's there's hints of mysticism and weirdness in it, but it's nothing really overt. It's quite a, quite a realistic film in a number of ways, but just with this, you know, aura of weirdness and surrealism and the other one which is debatable whether you can call it a western but i put it in that category because most of the film takes place in that particular part of the uh the park westworld <laughs> i love that film yeah yeah i guess if you really squinted it you you could sort of call it mm. call it that i was actually going to mention westworld the new series as well mm. matt's on about the film mm. with your brinner but the recent series is definitely a kind of a weird west setting as well to me it's mm. that's a, a very intriguing setting i still get to see the series but the original film for me is say one, one of my favorites any you would mention scott there are a few i'd say supernatural horror films that are set in the old west that are well worth a look there's quite a creepy film that came out i think oh gosh 10 years ago or so called dead birds which i i would recommend there's one i touched upon last time called the burrowers which i must admit isn't one of my favorite films i found it a bit dull but it's got plenty of ideas you could mine for call of cthulhu games there was a pretty silly but fun anthology film from the 80s called Grim Prairie Tales, which was sort of campfire tales about ghostly and horrible goings on in the Old West. And yeah, that was that was fun. There's a, a recent film which I, I started watching the other night and I haven't watched the end of it yet, called The Wind, which is on Shudder at the moment, which 
it's been likened to films like The Witch, and I can sort of see why it's about uh, some settlers in, I don't know exactly where, I think they talked about having moved on from Oklahoma, but maybe it's still there, but just these two families living in these really remote settlements, I mean, they're like two couples living in houses on the same plane, and there is just no one else for maybe a hundred miles around and just the isolation and weird things going on and it's really quite creepy yeah that isolation thing i think uh, in the john ford movie big country we see uh, the two main characters in the film they get into a fist fight over like over like territory and they're you know they're maybe their range is overlapping or you know contested territory we see them like out the back of the house and they're like brawling and then the camera slowly pans back and you see them brawling. They become smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And the country just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> yeah. And it's just wide open plains with nobody else. And there are these two little human beings fighting over territory in this never-ending open space. And it's just like, yeah, that really captures the feel of isolation and the, the futility of their struggle. Yeah. Fantastic. So for those of you that are looking for actual plays, because there's quite a few of those regular Call of Cthulhu out there, but those of you that want your Weird West fix, where might you find it? Well, I think something I mentioned on an earlier show is the Ain't Slayed Nobody podcast, who started off earlier this year doing actual play recordings of Down Darker Trails. Yeah, with Cuppy Cup and the, the regular gang, and they got some fantastic players. Oh, yeah. Who get some terrific accents, particularly uh, to give a shout out to Jeremiah. Oh, yeah, that's Wes, who I've played with a number of times in other games. Yeah, he's amazing. He's a stand up comedian and an actor, and he's obviously very good at this kind of stuff. Yeah, it totally shows because some of his improvised one-liners and his accents and so on are just like spot on. But I mean, they managed to bring in that kind of level of humour, but it's not all funny. Mm. There's some gritty stuff as well. It's a really good game and they really play it by the book. You know, they actually use the rules properly and, and, and the setting and really bring it to life. And it's a really well-produced podcast. So, you know, I'd recommend checking that out their main archon there is called yawl of cthulhu which i think is a wonderful name and that is the down dark trails one and they've obviously been doing a number of side projects including a few that i've done with them which aren't down darker trails but the main arc very much is so what experience do we have of playing the western genre or the Weird West in Call of Cthulhu or similar? I think I've only run one scenario set during the Old West. It's one I might polish up at some point and try and do something again with, but it's a, a long, long time since I've run that. Probably influenced a little bit by Stephen King's Desperation. I think I drew a few elements from that. One of the few of his stories that isn't set in Maine, it's set in mm. Nevada along Highway 50, the loneliest yeah. highway in America with the ship that gets dug up from way back in the day in this old, old town. Aside from that, it'd be my main experience would be playing and running Deadlands. But uh, yeah, the, and mm. in terms of Call of Cthulhu, yeah, very, very little, actually. It's one, one thing I'd like to do more of. Yeah, it was interesting you mentioned Maine. I mean, maybe not Maine, but the geography of the Old West, I always kind of thought of it as like over towards the West Coast, California and, and Texas mm. and Arizona. Well, and Well, Texas is fairly central. 
Yeah, it's central south. Sorry, I kind of banded it in with California, but yeah. to the sort of the south and the west then yeah. is is sort of what I meant. But you know, when when I did go to Dakota yeah. and Deadwood, when I looked at the map, I'm like, oh, the Wild West, if you like, kind of extends even up there mm. and when we were driving round, we were driving along one day and we end up driving through this place called sundance and i'm like hold on a minute there's a film festival there <laughs> the sundance kid there's <laughs> gotta be right <laughs> scott have you any experience of playing you know, the western setting in call of cthulhu no i don't really i played one game with you a while back paul i mean like 10 years ago or more which was a scenario i don't think you've ever published it no uh, i've got plans Right. Yeah, yeah. I remember playing that with you and enjoying it. And I think that is the only time I played Call of Cthulhu in the Old West. Yeah, I, I hope to change that. I've not had a chance to play any Down Dark Trails yet or, or read the book or anything like that. But um, yeah, yeah, if the opportunity presents itself, I would like to give it a go. Yeah, I'm really fired up to do something with it. And particularly with the kind of pulp options, maybe not like Gonzo pulp, you know, like going up to 11 but it's always that kind of scale of things, I guess. You know, I'd write it and then Matt would, you know, have the cowboys <laughs> flying around on spaceships. But <laughs> and nobody's even mentioned Cowboys versus Aliens, that film. That's because I've not seen it. Save yourself, Matt. Save yourself. This is what I've heard. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I thought the film was okay. I've not read the comic it was based okay. on yet, but I mean, the film is all right. Yeah. I. If I were to run or write something set in the Old West myself, I'd probably go for the other end of the scale than pulp. As I've mentioned before, what we tend to think of as Westerns is very much the mythology that has built up in the years since. And I think I'd be much more interested in going back to the actual history of the time and sort of desimplifying the whole thing, stopping it just being good guys mm. versus bad guys, introduce all that complexity back into it and explore that. In that case, I would recommend, you know, the Down Darker Trails books has got, you know, a significant chapter that is just that, is oh, good, exactly good, that, good. you know, about the, you know, the historic West. Hand in hand with that, something I, I'm planning on watching soon, but I haven't watched yet is Ken Burns' series, The West. Oh, okay, um, yeah. I've watched his Vietnam series and he leaves no stone unturned. Well, I think he's got one about the Civil War and one about the yeah, West. The Civil War one I've been meaning to watch for a long time. Mm. Yeah, I watched his series about the origins of jazz, which I found absolutely fascinating. I mean, apart from yeah. anything else, I mean, whether or not you're interested in jazz, I mean, I personally like it an awful lot, but whether or not you're interested in jazz's music, he goes in an awful lot into the cultures that birthed it and the history of what was going on, particularly in New Orleans at the start of the 20th century. And there's all sorts of really cool stuff there for Call of Cthulhu. Yeah, I kind of feel he could take pretty much any historical topic and make it interesting. Mm. If I was going to tackle any one topic regarding, or one or two topics regarding the West, I think I'd look at something Again, tying in with the history, but more of the themes rather than the actual historical events. Something like Manifest Destiny, this push and this mm. uh, almost God-given right that the settlers could keep pushing further and further west and what drove them to do so. And the other big iconic one as well that's uh, kind of touching into Deadlands, well, is the rail expansion heading west and the, mm. well, the race to see who can get the furthest out there and the quickest and that kind of monopoly and pretty much the sum... I was going to say inhuman conditions that some of the workers had to endure doing that. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, particularly the Chinese workers. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I guess if you're going to particularly go into stuff like Manifest Destiny and so on, then it really does become an examination or a deconstruction of colonialism and some of the worst aspects of that, which is very, very much at odds with the sort of traditional way in which Westerns have been presented. And, yeah, I mean, personally, I find that a much richer ground for my imagination than guys in white hats killing guys in black hats. It gives you more of a drive and a, a motivation straight off the bat rather than just saying, good, trying to stop evil. But also period-wise, you're perhaps looking at a slightly earlier period with that, I mm. would have said, because by the time we get round to the Wild West, which generally we're talking about 1870s, between the Civil War and the, in the 1890s, Little Bighorn being, what, about 74, 75, something like that, if memory serves correct. That was kind of the end of those, those wars mm. with the, yeah. the American Indian peoples. But that was kind of wrapping up then. So, you know, that was kind of almost a done deal it was it was too late i think you'd want to go earlier perhaps to mm. to get a perspective on that you know with the fur trappers and uh, lewis and clark and things like that or at least deal with some of the fallout from that yeah sure even though the wars are over there's obviously still the very bloody wounds in society on all sides from the conflicts that birthed all that right yeah okay yeah i see your perspective on that yeah you've got the the indoctrination of people and forced adoption and so on mm. Well, should we draw that to a, a close there mm. and say that it's a topic that we might well end up returning to. It's a very rich setting, a massive topic, really. Uh, hopefully we've managed to do it justice in two episodes. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have T-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, once again, it is that time when we would like to say thank you to uh, really quite a lot of people. First of all, thank you very much to everyone who listens to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. And thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a bunch of new people to thank by name. Yes, beginning with a big thanks going out to Linda. And also thanks going out to, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Cal Dugan. And thank you very much to Andrew McLaren. And thanks to the uh, kind of intriguingly, perhaps appropriately named Hangfire. Ah, who I did actually game with a little while back. Ah. And also thanks go out to Adam F. And thank you very much to Danny Scott. And thanks to Phil Campbell. And thank you very much to Michael Grant. And thank you to Tristan Narbra. And thanks to Robert Kipf. Another intriguing uh, name here. Thank you very much to, aptly come as we're coming up to Halloween, Mr. Bones. And thank you very much to the singularly named Felsenmere. And thank you to Robert Compton. And on the subject of singular names, thank you to Michael. And well, I guess it's time for our regular thing about um, if we're screwing up your names... Please let us know and we will reread them correctly because I'm going to attempt this and apologies if I get it wrong. Thank you very much to Andrew Tomasic. And thanks to Christopher Holmgren. And thank you very much to Nicholas Dreyer. And thank you very much finally to Jevon B. Okay. It's been a fun topic, I think. I've enjoyed exploring the, the, uh, the Weird West. But next time we're going to be lowering the lights and lowering our voices. And buzzing a bit. 
But more of that next time, because we're going to be whispering in the darkness. So until then, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com This is where I realise I haven't scrolled down far enough yet. <laughs> Sorry. You don't go down far enough, I don't go up far enough. Mm. <laughs> <Is> that <scrolling laughs> that's, that's how rumours get started, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>